0: Hello and welcome to the BitBlock Boom Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Leland, producer of the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference. And just for reference, I also produce the 4 Minute Bitcoin Podcast, available everywhere podcasts are available. Now, every August, I host the BitBlockBoom Bitcoin Conference in Dallas, Texas, with the help of many of my friends. If you are interested in Bitcoin, you really need to visit BitBlockBoom.com and take a look at the great speaker lineup and all the events that are going on around BitBlockBoom. You see, BitBlockBoom is a true Bitcoin conference, and I really mean a true Bitcoin conference. On this episode, I'm featuring a session from the 2020 BitBlockBoom Conference by Matt Hill, Let's take a listen. Hello,
1: hello, cool. All right, hi everybody. All right, we're there. So let me pull this out in case I need some notes. All right, so originally this talk was supposed to be on a technical track. I think originally there was a general and a technical. Um, So given that there's sort of one track now, I'm going to be uh, leaving some of the technicalities behind. Um, You know, during the Q&A, maybe we can get into it and you're always welcome to come by the booth and inquire more or visit our website, but I'm gonna try to keep the talk a little bit more general um, to computing and to Bitcoin and to the philosophy and meaning behind what is happening and what we're doing and how we're participating and get into the details in another time. So to start this off, um, I wanna do a very brief kind of history, uh, opinionated, and, you know, a subjective history of personal computing uh, as the way we see it here at Start9. So the first computing, personal computing revolution was really in the you know, late 70s, early 80s, uh, in the era of the Apple II of the early Windows systems where a personal computer was just that. It was a machine that went into your home, and was capable of doing some very uh, non-networky things such as a calculator or a word processor um, or a video game. And uh, all the data that was produced by you or by the machine uh, stayed on the machine. What happened on the machine stayed on the machine. And this was really cool, right? It took computers from being these big university, organizational, uh, even government technologies, and it brought this power to the individual. And, you know, few at the time recognized how transformative and revolutionary this would be, but some did, and they built companies uh, on top of it, which have now become some of the largest, most powerful companies in the world, in particular, Apple. Um, we'll get to that in a little bit. So. The second computing revolution was the recognition, came about through the recognition that these devices were powerful but could be much more powerful if networked together. And so we started linking one computer to another. And this had been happening prior to the first computing revolution, but only in a very niche uh, way by powerful people. But the internet, right, is what I'm talking about here. And in particular, uh, the architecture of the internet, which is really what in dev circles we call client-server architecture which is where you have essentially consumers and producers of services, information, and uh, communication mediums. So if I open my computer today, uh, more often than not, the things I'm doing on that computer are actually renting space on somebody else's computer, which we call a server. Uh, So my computer is referred to as a client, and the things I'm talking to are called servers. And this was implemented pretty early on and has since grown and grown and grown in the disparity between these two concepts. To where now, you know, in the early days of the internet you may have had you know, individuals running nodes on the internet where they were actually file sharing with other nodes. And it, some companies recognized that there was actually immense value in being the custodian and the middleman, the liaison of data and information. And so they saw value in servers, in being a service provider of data and communication um, services. So what happened was the hub and spoke model that defines the internet today became exaggerated. The hubs got bigger. And there were more and more of them. But the problem is, is that the hubs became owned by fewer and fewer people. Until today, almost everything that you do on what we call the internet is flowing through in one way or another, a very, very small group of organizations in the world, right? I the, the four biggins that we know most, more often than not are Apple, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon. Uh, but there are others and not many of them. Uh, to where most of the internet rides on these server farms run by these companies. And this is all fine and dandy, uh, and was actually really cool that it happened, because look at what happened to the world. Suddenly, I could, you know, information share with somebody on the other side of the world with the flick of my finger, and I don't need any technical expertise, and every human being now has, you know, the library of Alexandria times 10 in their pocket, and it's just, it's amazing what has happened but it came at a yet unforeseen trade-off, right? Maybe some had foreseen this, but we are only now starting to recognize the repercussions of this architecture, the bind that we've gotten ourselves into, Um, as these companies and the governments that they are, um, whose, whose jurisdictions they are subjected to, are beginning to abuse the power that we have granted to them freely in exchange for, our own personal uh, benefit and convenience. So again, nobody's to blame here, uh, but it is a natural consequence of the you know, choices that we have made over the last few decades. Um, and so before I get into the third computing revolution, which is what this is really all about, um, I wanna reference a couple of other talks and then sort of combine the concepts real quick to, to give a flavor of what this revolution feels like. Um, so one is a 2015 talk by Andreas, uh, entitled Decentralization and the Architecture of Power. If you haven't listened to it, uh, it's great. It's a little 20 minute talk, but it's, it, it touches on something very precious and very important. Uh, another one is a talk by Brett Victor, um, technologist and philosopher uh, back in 2012 gave this talk called Inventing on Principle, where he talks about Um, rather than seeking your passion, right, like what you were meant to do and finding what you love and doing that or finding what's going to make the most money and doing that or doing what your friends think you should do is it's finding a principle that represents a worldview that does not exist and should have some sort of moral tone to it, right, some injustice that you would like to write in the world and a principle that would help rectify that injustice and then to devote your life to that principle. And that when you do that, you tend to find more purpose and have more energy and, and, you know, I personally do that before I heard this talk, but once I heard it, it was a very validating experience. So again, listen to that talk. Um, so if you combine the two concepts of these talks, what you arrive at is inventing on the principle of a decentralized architecture of power, okay? And that is Um, the third computing revolution in a nutshell. It's not about making computers do more than they can currently do or making them faster or making them more powerful or delivering more information. The third computing revolution is actually a revolution. This is not about computers anymore, right? There's a real human revolution taking place here that computers can assist with. They can be a a weapon, a tool, a defense mechanism. Uh, They can be at the heart of this revolution. And, you know, Bitcoin really pioneered this. Bitcoin was the first, I would argue, real principled implementation of a decentralized architecture, right? It demonstrated in 2009, Satoshi Nakamoto, he, them, her demonstrated that you could build computer systems using network protocols could accomplish the same things that centralized protocols can accomplish, but do it in a way that did not centralize power into a hierarchy. So here we all are, over a decade later, celebrating in a way uh, Bitcoin, also recognizing that there's a long road ahead of us, but we're all at this conference because we know that Bitcoin is special, that this is not just some Alternative Venmo, and it is fundamentally different than a lot of the I'll be nice altcoins. Um, that there's something actually really powerful going on here that it extends beyond just computer technology. And so the way I like to think of Bitcoin in my in my own worldview and in what what we at Start Nine are trying to accomplish is that it's like the it's like the hero of the army, right? I like to think of it as like you know the Troy and Greek mythology and it's like you know everyone's chanting Achilles you know as he's running onto the battlefield to fight the you know to fight Hector and the Trojan army and it's well a lot of what people forget is that Achilles got there on ships and had an army and a team right and other weapons that there were archers standing behind him and that I think the bitcoin community has a tendency to get a little bit too into the chanting for Achilles, forgetting that a lone hero cannot win a war and that we need Bitcoin because it's the heart and soul of this revolution. It's the battle cry, right? We need Bitcoin to take on the financial institutions that have become the primary oppressors of planet Earth. Bitcoin is our best tool to fight that oppression. But what about messaging? What about your pictures? What about email, right? What about your passwords? So much of your life exists on the internet. It has nothing to do with Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is a, is a crack in the system. We broke the wall, right? The water is flooding out. But what good is Bitcoin if you are sending the address that you want somebody to pay you at over text message, right? What good is base layer privacy in Bitcoin if I call you on the phone and tell, me to, and tell you to send me money? There's a whole infrastructure that surrounds Bitcoin that if it is compromised, so is Bitcoin. Great, everyone's running a node on DigitalOcean. What does that do? It's It's a temporary feeling of exuberance that could be flipped off with a switch, right? AWS, not okay. So for Bitcoin to succeed, it needs infrastructure and it needs to be complemented by a whole suite of other technologies and i'm not talking about altcoins i'm not talking about competitors to bitcoin i'm talking about supportive technologies right we can't just sit back and hope bitcoin conquers the world bitcoin fixes this is not an okay phase for a phrase forever it's like it doesn't it starts it (laughs) but we need to help it so The third computing revolution is about taking the hub-and-spoke model of the internet and shattering the hubs into a million little pieces and putting one in everybody's home. And I'm not just talking about a physical device that we happen to sell. Right, this is not just a sales pitch. But I mean it. We have to get off of the cloud. We spent 20 years putting all of the world's information and communications infrastructure into the cloud, which is where Bitcoin largely lives right now. If Bitcoin lives in the cloud, I don't care how strong it is if the cloud can be deleted. So it's time to break the hub and spoke model and start putting devices everywhere. And it's not just about hardware, right? It's about internet protocols. It's about networking protocols. It's about peer to peer technologies, everywhere from text messaging to me storing my, again, you know, I take some pictures with my phone. Where do those pictures go? They should go to my own server, not to AWS. How much time do I have? Is this a countdown? You also have five after. after this, I have five minutes. Okay, great. All right, so really quickly, I would like to get into something that dovetails off of this, the idea of a revolution, and, and which is what I believe we are in right now, and I think most people in this room would agree. Maybe early stages, but this is, this is not just technology. Like, this is going to be a fight. Um, Little known to most people, I was a film major in college. Um, Emphasis in writing, college is useless. Um, However, I did learn something about cinema that I think is relevant here, which is there's this concept uh, around what's called first, second, and third cinema. Um, And these were used, these concepts were developed Uh, in the 20th century when cinema was an extremely powerful force for political organization. Now, it still is, okay, but propaganda during World War II was like how you won the war. So, cinema, the, the motion picture was this extremely new and powerful thing, and it was divided into these three categories. It's one way of looking at it. There's tons of ways to organize anything. First cinema is the cinema of the state. It is the cinema of the, uh, the power that exists, okay? Not necessarily the state, but of the company, of the, it's, it's trying to maintain the status quo. It's trying not to change. This is Hollywood. What comes out of a Hollywood studio is very much designed to reinforce the status quo socioeconomically of whatever jurisdiction it was released in, which is large, more and more becoming global. Second cinema is what we most commonly refer to as, like, indie films, right? These, like, hobbyist projects, either art projects or, you know, counterculture, like, you know, fuck the state projects. But they sort of live at this layer of consumability, right? They're edgy, they're new, they're controversial, and they're profitable, potentially. So, what do they do? They get scooped up by the first cinema. Right? First cinema goes over and it just eats them right up, and it takes all their aesthetics, right? It seems like the goth movies from the 90s or something like that, and suddenly it was like every movie was coming out of Hollywood. It just, it stole all the aesthetics, all the light motifs from these second cinema um, examples and just turned them into machines of the state, into machines of the existing power structure. And so, it's not enough, right? And so the concept of third cinema comes up. And what third cinema is, is it is the holy other. Not H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y, right? It's completely other, it is unconsumable. It's like poison to the state. It's poison to the, to the existing power structure because it's essentially antithetical at the base. Uh, an example of third cinema is a movie called Battle of Algiers. Um, This was a a narrative film, two and a half, three hours, pretty long, that circulated through Algeria during the French occupation. And it was the story of a particular segment of Algeria that successfully resisted the French in a few guerrilla battles. And rather than just telling the story, the movie actually advocated for action. It was like a how-to video, and so it circulated. And everyone who watched it, next thing they knew, found themselves with communicating, found themselves communicating with other people who had also watched it and forming cells. And those cells started enacting tactics that were promoted by the movie against real French soldiers. And it ended up being a depending on your perspective of history and where you live and who you support, it ended up being a successful revolution in that the French walked out with their tails between their legs. And this movie had everything to do with it, right? It was not something that the French could usurp and use against the revolutionaries. It was something that they had to try to cancel um, because it was fueling the revolution. And so, That always stuck with me, this idea of being wholly other, of being something completely unconsumable, of being totally antithetical to effect change. And, you know, as a technologist, I apply it to technology, right? Bitcoin is completely undigestible, (laughs) right? It, It cannot be consumed by the existing financial system. They are trying desperately to do that. They're taking every aspect of Bitcoin, every buzzword they can find attached to it, and just adding it to their own marketing and they're building out entire teams. One of my dear friends is a, oh man, I can't call her out. Okay, Um, works for a big financial institution that's trying to do blockchain. And is just miserable about this and just being like these people are literally spinning in circles, just saying the word blockchain to each other. And there's nothing else happening. And they, they all just pretend like something's happening and it's like, because Bitcoin, you can't do Bitcoin. It is completely over there. It, it doesn't fit in anywhere. And I just love that idea. I absolutely love it. And so we decided to do it too. <laughs> um, but in light of what I was saying earlier, it was like we decided to do it in a complementary way, not a competitive way. Why compete with Bitcoin? It's the hero, right? Let's help it out. So we got together and started talking about this. What does Bitcoin need? How can we be of help? And what we found was not just that we could be of help, but that we could be in integral, that we could actually be a part of the story in a major way or somebody like us, right? This, this particular company doesn't matter, right? We, teams need names and organization and, you know, communication, but we just want to see Bitcoin live on a decentralized infrastructure complemented by decentralized and open source self-hosted technologies. And so that's what we do every day. Um, so real quick, I'll get into that. So what do we do? Um, I will stay away from the product pitch and just talk about kind of like how we strategically are going about building a company that is um, in as a goal, as an objective. Are we cancelable today? Bet your ass, okay? Somebody walks into our Denver office that's listed on, <laughs> on the Secretary of State and says, stop doing what you're doing. And we go, okay. Nothing we can do, totally cancelable. Becoming uncancelable is a process, not a state of being, and nothing is uncancelable. And uncancelable is a word; it's a buzzword, right? Unstoppable, uh, undeniable, you, you name it. But just we're going to do what we want to do, and nobody can stop us. That's the goal. That's what Bitcoin is—the honey badger. But Bitcoin, <laughs> but you know, is is Bitcoin cancelable? If the sun explodes tomorrow, is Bitcoin dead? Okay, everything is stoppable. The key is to zero in on what the viable threats are. Is Bitcoin stoppable in practice in the world today? Man, it'd be tough. Be a lot easier six years ago, China and the United States get together today along with everybody else and crazy things and maybe, who knows, right? It's far from a sure bet but it's the best one we have, but everything is stoppable. So it's about taking measures to become more unstoppable than you were yesterday. And Bitcoin was born in a very odd way, right? Like most things are, are not born by, you know, anonymous creators dropping things on the internet. And it is, a, it, was, it was beautiful, beautiful. But, um, you know, we are striving for a similar kind of existence in the future but as it stands, we are a small startup company trying to uh, you know, help out in any way that we can, and we're a poor little cancelable thing in Denver. Um, however, so the reason this is on the board um, is this was a, we'll call it a case study, an example, something that we're proud of, um, that was delivered to us along with some other unfortunate words from Apple in May, I wanna say. Uh, We launched the first embassy at uh, Tone's conference, Unconfiscatable in February, and we were shipping. And the way that you use this device, so, you know, first of all, this device is a personal server for the home. It is a general purpose personal server. The first service that we made available on the server was Bitcoin. Um, And we're talking like, okay, full node running over Tor. Gary set it up in, what, less than two minutes. and He's been a fan ever since. So um, the way that you communicate with this device is through a native mobile app that we built for iOS and Android. So you plug it into your wall, you open up this app, you pass it some cryptographic information to tell it who its master is, and from that moment on, you and you alone, anywhere you are in the world, are the only person that can communicate to your embassy, which is sitting in your home, directly over Tor in total privacy. Talking to a hardware device in your home over Tor, nobody can stop you, nobody even knows that it's running. Okay, total end-to-end encryption and onion-routed over Tor. Problem is, is it's an iOS app. (laughs) And we knew when we did this, that Apple wasn't going to like it, okay? And we knew that eventually, Apple might try to stop us, because we are antithetical to them as a company. Right, The vast majority of these companies' income is coming from the custodianship of privacy and data. Apple says, we value your privacy as long as it comes through us. Okay? They don't actually value your privacy, they value being the custodian of your privacy. So we knew that we were circumventing that, that we were giving people real privacy that it's your device, there's no third party, there's no cloud, And that eventually that just would be intolerable to them. Well, it happened a lot sooner than we thought. Um, we still don't know if it was because of incompetence or malice. Personally, I think it's the former, that they just didn't get it. And it was so odd to them, what we were doing, that they just were like, this seems weird and dangerous. And they kicked us off. Well, they didn't kick us off. They prohibited us from ever making another update to the iOS app unless we conform to their requests, which was to destroy our product offering and no longer allow people to f- discover and install what we call services, right? Bitcoin being a service onto their device, which is the whole point of this thing, right? You, you browse for services, you click install, it's now running on the device, now you can use it from wherever you want. Um, and they were like, you can't do that. So what we did was we took the existing iOS app, and we cracked it into two parts. The first part is like really, really tiny, and it's just the initial setup. It's like, okay, all we're gonna do here is claim the device. We're gonna pass it some cryptographic material. It now knows who you are, and it's yours forevermore. Part of the cryptographic material that now gets passed to the device is a a couple of private keys, one of which is used to create the Tor hidden service URL, which is a public key, the Tor V3 address, and the other one is to create an SSL certificate. The embassy now uses both of of these keys along with a password of your choosing to actually take the entire iOS app that used to be a native app and serve it up as a website from the device. So now, after you've claimed this device, it actually broadcasts itself as a Tor hidden service and a .local URL onto the internet that you can now open any browser of your choosing and just put in your unique URL and be talking to the device in your home on the other side of the world in total privacy, which was like the hugest middle finger we could give to Apple, because we just took their entire rejection of our app and put it on the the internet, (laughs) privately served up from your own private device in your own house. And the setup app, which is still an iOS app, can very easily and in the next few days will be shipped as a Mac, Linux, Windows app, Android app, It's already on Android, and even as a single file that you can download from the internet and just run on your computer as a single page website right from your desktop. So nobody can stop you from setting up the device. Nobody can stop you from communicating with the device and installing whatever you want on it and then communicating with those services. And we're not there, right? Apple was just sort of one hurdle we had to get past. In our path to becoming uncancelable, governments will be more difficult. But that is our approach and that is our goal. Um, Anyway, thank you, and we can do some questions.
0: So, are you prepared to? Respond when Apple or Google offers you three billion dollars to sell your company, and then they control it.
1: Yeah, fun. Um, I look forward to that day. <laughs> um, so great. So there's a couple things there. One is you know what if what prevents Apple and Google from just doing this, from coming out with a personal server for the home and just blowing us out of the water with all their capital and marketing engines. Uh, Number two is what prevents them from shutting us down through incentives, right, by literally just temptation. Um, First one's really easy to answer, which is that they would never invent a product unless they thought it was actually going to like totally become the next big thing beyond anything they currently do. Companies don't invent products that cannibalize their other products. Right. Apple, their whole essence, Google's entire essence, is being the custodian of privacy, it's the cloud. So why would they make a device that kills the cloud? Um, so we're not too concerned about them like competing with us. Um, we are concerned about them trying to buy us for a few billion dollars and shut it down. Um, but here's the deal, is the manner in which we're going about this probably would make that a very unlikely scenario because um, the software is available, right? Like, there's not a lot to own here, right? A, the riddle of the future, the conundrum of, the de- of open source self-hosted software is how do you make money, right? Bitcoin found this weird little crack where it's just like, oh, we'll make a coin, right? It's, it's part of the system itself and then all the shit coins proliferated being like, oh, we can make money too. Um, so part of our challenge is gonna be how to do this in the manner that is uncancelable, decentralized, and open, and still find a way to insert ourselves, either as a you know customer support or convenience. And we have we have some good ideas, and it's an evolving uh, thing. But that's not something Apple's going to want to buy, right? They want to buy something that's entirely proprietary, backed by patents and closed source software, and that's just not what we're going to be. So I don't see it happening. Um, and that's that. Yeah.
0: Hey. Congratulations. I'm really excited about the future of this because really what I see is as society collapses and we're starting to move into more of a black market, uh, we're going to need services like yours to communicate. It's going to be uh, Mm -hmm. the circumstances of the collapse will lead to the necessity for your type of product. And I yep. really applaud you for starting this whole, really, uh, yet yeah, next revolution. Thank you.
1: Thanks, appreciate it. Um, okay, uh, I'll make one tiny little comment on that, uh, which is that we are very much going the platform route. Like we, we very much are trying to be the convenient pathway Uh, for an individual to have a personal server, our operating system is our primary value add that allows them to browse and install services. We don't want to make those services. In fact, we don't need to make those services. The world of open source self-hosted software is richer than most people can imagine. It's been decades of extremely passionate individuals and teams oftentimes working for nothing off of pure ideology to build these incredible technologies that end up cooped up on GitHub behind a README that nobody can follow. And it is our intent as a company not to compete with those services, not to come up with our own messaging protocols, not to compete with Bitcoin, but to provide these things with a platform that will unleash the floodgate of open source software unlike we've ever imagined. That is our goal as a company. Hey, Matt.
0: I'm just finishing reading The Sovereign Individual for the first time. So something like this is incredibly exciting to me because it's just like another among a myriad of of other examples of that kind of ethos coming to life right now. So I'm kind of curious. My question would be, what's your view for like a longer term time horizon, like three to five years for what other use cases and like integration with other open source software like that the embassy might have?
1: Wow. Yeah. Um, So currently, right, it's a platform for self-hosted open source software. And that can go in a whole variety of directions that I can't even begin to imagine. Just like in the early days of the app store, they couldn't possibly imagine TikTok, right? Now, again, a lot of these things are already in existence, so we can use our imagination a little, or I should say we don't have to use our imagination, right? We just have to start adding more of them. And we're putting out an SDK that will allow other individuals and teams to put their own services onto a marketplace that currently is hosted by us, but is about to be federated such that even we can't be a central point of failure for that. Um, But in the future, um, man, I'm so excited I get to talk about this even for just one minute. So the big red line for a lot of people in the world right now is not Google is storing my photos. It's Alexa is listening. That's the fucking red line. Right? It's the security cameras and the home speakers. It's the invasion of privacy is actually coming into the home. Right? But a lot of these, a lot of the hardware is actually quite commoditized. Like it's not that difficult to be a hardware manufacturer in the modern world. Right? People are very scared of hardware, especially investors. As we've talked to a couple of people, they're like, you're doing hardware. Oh my God. Like it's not that bad anymore. We're not inventing computer boards. It's, it's very commoditized. Um, so what we have the opportunity to contribute to is the robot future. The robot future is happening whether you like it or not. Everyone is gonna have smart this, that, blah. Everything's gonna be networked together. You're gonna have drones circling your house. It's just, it's amazing. The question is, is is the robot future going to be centrally commanded by Google Cloud, or is it gonna be your own personal cloud? Do these devices belong to you in the grittiest way possible? Do they, are they your robot servants, or are they robot servants that you rent by the grace of Google? or whatever government runs Google, or whatever government Google runs. Mm -hmm. So we have the opportunity here to, I'll make an announcement real quick, without a date, that the next uh, non-server, right? There will be sort of higher and lower tier embassies that come out, but the next non-embassy device that Start9 releases will in all probability be a security camera. That will automatically, with the tap of a button, find your embassy on the tour network. You could put it in a different state. Okay, I could, put a, I could have my embassy in Colorado and put a security camera in Florida, tap my phone to my security camera, and the security camera finds the embassy in Denver and starts syncing video footage such that I can view it from my iPhone in New York without anybody knowing what's happening. Um, and then it goes from there. Drones, blah, 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 blah. So it gets a little crazy and I don't like to talk about it too much because it gets me too excited. But we are not just a like here a personal server company. Uh, we could end up playing a major role in the private robot future. All right, I think that's it. <laughs> is, is that it? Do we have time for one more? Am I killing the conference right now? Two more, actually. We have two more. <laughs> one more? I'm sorry. She's got, okay, well last one. I'll I'll be quick about it. Um, Thank you. I have a quick question. So Google and Apple have about 99% of the market share when it comes to operating systems. Is there anything in that 1% that you recommend for people to use for cell phones? Like, you know, like the Finny iPhone and like there's just other blockchain phones. The smartphone market you said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, currently uh, because iOS is so, authoritarian in the the operating system rules and Apple as a company, like there aren't even any good Tor browsers for iOS, right? So, man, I have announcements that I can't do right now, but keep an eye out for our blog post. So we are launching a Tor browser for iOS um, in the next couple of days. In fact, I can give out the test flight beta link to anybody who wants it. Um, And the Tor browser for iOS that we're launching is a bookmark-centric Tor browser such that if you launch it, it basically just launches all of your saved websites which are actually just services running on your own personal device in your home. So it's like a phone within a phone, right? You open up this app and you see a bunch of other apps that are, it's like going into dark mode on your phone and now you're using this device in your home as opposed to apps that are connecting to third-party servers. The next logical step for us in that progression is to get rid of the phone. So instead of a phone within a phone, we just make a phone. Like there we'll there, there are already <laughs> <laughs> there are already open source phones that you can buy that are highly configurable and blank slates such that you can install your own OS. So we have and are continuing to design Ambassador, which is our operating system for mobile. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right, thanks everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to the BitBlockBoom podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Make sure and take a look at this year's lineup of speakers at BitBlockBoom.com. And if you use the code COUSINS, that's C-O-U-S-I-N-S, when purchasing your conference tickets, you'll receive 30% off the price of a general admission ticket. I hope to meet you at next year's BitBlockBoom conference in Dallas, Texas,